Good morning. No, we're doing that again. Good morning. There we go. My name is Brandon, uh, one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. Uh, as he said, we are uh, going through a series of the Gospel of Luke, but first let me give a quick update. Uh, as of the 26th uh, for our December giving, we are roughly about 50% of the way. Uh, as we do most years or every year, we know uh, some of you guys want to give in January for a, a few reasons, and so we keep it open for a few days uh, into January for the first weekend of January, so we're going to do that again uh, this year. And then on the 13th, two Sundays from now, I'll give a final update. This is how we finished, uh, and then this is where it leaves us overall in the capital campaign uh, in general. All right, so let's talk Luke. Luke is one of the uh, four Gospels, what we call the four Gospels, that look at the life, ministry, teaching of, uh, of Jesus. Um, Theophilus, or Luke was written to a man named Theophilus, who was a uh, Roman citizen, likely a government official. And if I could say it this way, Luke was writing an ancient documentary of the life of Jesus. In the opening chapters of this, he is doing some character development, where he's introducing characters into the story and then developing them uh, along the way. And then on Christmas Eve, uh, Monday night, uh, with the birth of Christ, Luke introduces the main character into the story. And in this event, this week, the one that we're going to look at, where Jesus turns 12 and he's in the temple, Luke is the only one of the four Gospels to include this story. None of the other uh, three, uh, Matthew, Mark, John, include this story in their narrative of Jesus' life. So now, whether you, uh, whether you would say, I'm, I'm a Christian, I've been a Christian for a week, a month, a year, two years, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, uh, and, and you're trying to learn to read the Bible, or if you would say, I'm, I'm not a Christian, uh, but I'm curious, I'm intrigued by uh, the person and the life and the teaching of Jesus, uh, anytime you open up the Scriptures to, to read them, there are a few questions that you need to ask. Questions like, um, why is this in here? What, what's, the, what's the point of this story in particular? Uh, or something like, how does this story fit in the broader story of Luke? And then how does Luke fit in the broader story of uh, the Bible? Or this one, which is going to be the main question that we are going to address today. Why would Luke... Why, why would Luke be the only author of the four Gospels to include this story? Why would the other three not include it, but why would Luke include this story? Now, here's why that's an important question for us. As modern uh, Western readers of, of literature, you're probably going to be tempted to just sort of pass over this a bit and to see it uh, really as sort of a... Um, an interesting story about Jesus as a 12-year-old, maybe, uh, maybe nothing more than a bridge from birth to adulthood. But oh, how you would be wrong. How you would be wrong. How I was wrong. I have been wrong. See, Theophilus would have known exactly what Luke was doing. For Theophilus, there had been no ambiguity, no confusion about what Luke is doing by inserting this little story into his narrative of Jesus' life. He would have known as a student of Roman literature exactly what Luke was doing, exactly what Luke was doing. He would have known that ancient documentaries, ancient biographies, if you will, their focus, their target was the adulthood of the hero. But they also would have known, and he, also, he would have known that they also include something showing them as a child 
possessing as a child what it was that would make them great as an adult. He knew that the insertion of the story was fitting with a literature that he was aware of, showing that there's something about this boy Jesus that he possesses as a boy that's going to make him great one day as an adult. And so our question then today is this. What is Luke trying to say about 12-year-old Jesus? What is it that 12-year-old Jesus possesses that's going to make him great as an adult? If we see it, if we can get that answer, we're going to get a more full, more beautiful and robust picture of the life and ministry of Jesus. And I'm going to give you a hint as to what it is. I'm going to give you a hint um, because it's obvious, uh, but it's not the full picture. Here's the hint. The hint is this, that our text begins and ends with wisdom. And so we're going to look at our text under three headings, ancient wisdom, present wisdom, and future wisdom. Ancient, present, future wisdom. Let's go verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, let me stop here. There's one commentator who, the way he, the way he said it was that uh, in, in the structure and the language and the grammar that, that Luke is using here, he is highlighting the word wisdom. And so if I could um, say it this way, if you and I were writing Luke, the way we would do it, in, uh, we, we would write our sentence out, and then you would probably like bold, italicize, and underline the word wisdom. You would make that the word that just leaps off the page at you. And that's what Luke is doing uh, right here. But, but here's, a, here's my question for us. Why, if the focus is Jesus as an adult, why, uh, why are we looking at this verse, speaking and highlighting the word wisdom under the heading of ancient wisdom? Why are we doing that? Here's the answer. The, the same commentator said that here's what Luke is doing. Uh, Luke is drawing a theological uh, bridge between Jesus as a boy and the Old Testament. This is what he says he's doing. He says he's identifying Jesus as the Davidic figure of Isaiah 11, and he draws out of the language uh, that Luke uses here. He's identifying him as the Davidic figure of Isaiah 11. David was this king in Israel, and he's the, uh, the Messiah, the Savior, uh, was going to be in the lineage of David, and he was going to be the better king that David was meant to be. But what's the significance of Isaiah 11? We're going to look at it because there are some themes in Luke that have been on repeat or just sitting on loop over and over, and this is, we're going to see it again. So Isaiah 11, 1 through 4, says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. See, in Luke, there's this theme that keeps coming up over and over and over, just on loop so far, that what Jesus is is a king who cares for the poor. Jesus is the king who cares for the poor, who values justice. For what's the language from Isaiah? Equity for the meek. 
Jesus is a king who cares for the poor and for the marginalized. And in using language that identifies Jesus back with Isaiah 11, here's what Luke is doing. Luke is giving theological development and theological grounding for the social and the ethical implications of Jesus' life and ministry and teaching and his kingdom. He's giving theological rooting, grounding for the ethical and social implications of Jesus' life and in his kingdom. And on Christmas Eve, this is what we said. When Theophilus was first introduced to the story of Jesus, this baby who would grow up to be king, a king who cares for the poor, Theophilus would have known this. He would have said, listen, um, I, I can't respond with intellectual integrity and not, not just concede that there's not a king on the face of the earth like this. There is not a nation on the face of the earth who has a king who cares for the poor and for the marginalized. Not a king on the face of the earth who works for the poor. You see, in, in Rome, this is how it went. In Rome, the poor esteem the king, not the king esteems the poor. In Rome, the poor esteem the king, not the king esteems the poor. There is not a king on the face of the earth like this until Jesus shows up on the scene. And this would have been a collision between ancient and modern wisdom happening in real time. Ancient wisdom that said this, you want shalom, you want flourishing, you want that like holistic human flourishing for that shalom that everybody wants. Here's how you get it. You get it by having a king who values all people equally. You, you get it by having a king who, who will take his power and use it to serve the poor. And this is colliding with modern wisdom that says, you want shalom, here's how you get it. You get it through military might. You, you, you get it through wealth and riches. You get it by being the most powerful and rich nation on the face of the earth. Rome, this is how you get it. You want shalom, you need money, you need a military. That's how you get it. You need a king who will exploit whoever needs to be exploited, marginalize whoever needs to be marginalized, so that we get to experience the shalom that comes with affluence and power. And this is the collision that happens in Jesus. And Jesus is the embodiment of this ancient wisdom, wisdom that collided with Rome's vision for what the good and the beautiful and the true life is meant to be. But it doesn't just collide with Rome, it collides with us. It collides with our success at all costs, our achievement and esteem. Climb the ladder. Let me give you an example, um, an illustration of this. If I say the name Bernie, uh, not Bernie Sanders, sorry, Bernie Madoff, do y'all know who I'm talking about? Bernie Madoff? Bernie Madoff ran a $64.8 billion Ponzi scheme. $64.8 billion Ponzi scheme. Uh, if you don't know what a Ponzi scheme is, just think this. He stole $64.8 billion because people just gave him their money. $64.8 billion. Now listen, I know Madoff is an, is an extreme example. I'm, I'm, a, I'm aware of that. But let's put our cards on the table and be honest about something. Bernie Madoff is what happens when you take our modern success, achievement at all cost values off the leash. When they are unrestrained, Bernie Madoff is where they lead. Is where they lead. Now, I, I know uh, that you are likely not going to be Bernie Madoff. It is unlikely anyone in this room is going to steal a billion dollars from anybody. But let me tell you this. You take those values, success, and achievement at all cost off the leash in your heart, and you watch where it leads. Watch where it leads. 
Watch the destruction it creates in you and in those around you. Watch where it leads. And here's the danger. We live in urban Houston. Success, achievement is just the air we breathe. It's just the air we breathe. And we don't even know we're breathing it. You take those off the leash and you give yourself over to it and watch the destruction it leads to. Jesus was the living embodiment of ancient wisdom, ancient wisdom in human flesh. But where Luke goes in the story next is he, he goes to this present wisdom in the life of 12-year-old Jesus. And so let's look at it in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, they're returning. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Okay, Luke is setting the stage for what's about to happen in this scene. And so their family, they had traveled to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. This was an annual trip they went and they, that they made. And they went to go and remember, uh, remember the time when God delivered the people of Israel, it, not Israel, that's not even a, a thing, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. But then they would also look forward to the time when the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer would show up to deliver the people of Israel again. And on their way back, they're walking back, um, and Mary, Joseph, they look around, they realize um, it's been a day, and, and Jesus is not with us. Now, I need to pause here for a minute before you go all judgmental on Joseph and Mary uh, for their parenting skills or lack thereof. Uh, you have to get out of your mind this picture of like the three of them walking, Mary, Joseph in a conversation, and waking up 12 hours later and going, wait a minute, have you seen Jesus? I haven't seen. Oh my gosh, where is Jesus? That's not how this worked. Uh, they were in a, a, a group of probably hundreds. They traveled that way for safety, would have had significant extended networks of family and relatives and cousins and aunts and uncles and everybody that would have been together. And so it would not have been uncommon um, for the children not to be with parents as they made this uh, journey because they're in this massive crowd of people traveling together for a variety of reasons, which as a side note is a reminder that their culture is not our culture and why uh, we need to continually try to put ourselves in their shoes to understand, experience, and interpret the Bible the way it was meant to be uh, interpreted. So let's keep reading. Verse 46. And after three days, so they're back searching for Jesus. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So they show up, they find him in the temple, sitting among the teachers. These teachers, these were the ones who were educated in the scriptures. These were, these teachers, these were the ones who were uh, possessors of wisdom. They're the ones who people looked at and said, you need wisdom, go talk to them. You need wisdom, go, go sit and get counsel from them. Their wisdom, though, it came from their education. But you see the word amazed, where it says they were amazed at his understanding uh, and answers. That word amazed, it's a strategic word for Luke. Luke uses it in a few other places uh, that's associated with supernatural events. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, Luke 8, Jesus raising a girl from the dead. Acts 9, which is also uh, written by Luke. Um, Saul, who would become Paul uh, at his conversion. Uh, Acts 10, the Holy Spirit coming upon the Gentiles. 
Um, this word amazed gets linked to these supernatural events. And so in hindsight, Theophilus would have looked back and known that this was Luke saying, hey, they're, they're amazed at this supernatural wisdom that Jesus has. That his wisdom, the wisdom of Jesus, is an inherent wisdom. It's something he was born with. It didn't just come from 40 years of religious studies. This was a supernatural in that it did not come through the natural process wisdom that Jesus had, which takes us to Jesus' first words in the Gospel of Luke. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. So his parents show up, and they just say, hey, Jesus, if I could paraphrase, what in the world are you doing, man? Like, we have been searching for you and searching for you and searching for you. What are you doing? And Jesus says this. This is his first, it's how Jesus verbally launches himself into the gospel of Luke. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. His parents find him, show up. What'd you, what are you doing this? Why, why, why'd you do this, Jesus? And his response is this. Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Now, keep the setting in mind. Keep the scene in mind. Jesus is sitting among the teachers. Teachers who would have known, you do not speak of God this way. You, a few references to God as Father, but an individual did not show up and just say, God is my Father. Like, they would have been irate at hearing that. Because this would have been from Jesus, out of his mouth as a 12-year-old, a statement of relationship. This would have been Jesus saying, I have a relationship with God unlike anyone else. And they would have lost their minds. Can you imagine? Can you imagine these teachers spent their life devoted to the scriptures and this 12-year-old boy shows up and says, I, I've got a relationship with God that's unlike any of yours. Can you imagine? But it was also a statement of divinity. It was also a statement of divinity, which is why if you take the words of Jesus seriously, you will not have a neutral response to him. If you take what Jesus said about himself seriously, you will not have a neutral response. You will either lean in and worship or you will lean back in rejection, but you will not be neutral. All right? These teachers would not have been neutral. So these teachers would have either said, you know what? I mean, I mean y'all heard him. I don't know. Y'all heard him. Maybe he's right. I mean, maybe. Or they would have said, blasphemer, get him out of here. There would have been no neutral response to Jesus. They would have said, ah, maybe he's right. Maybe this is true. Or rejection. Nothing neutral in their response to this. So Luke is presenting Jesus not just as the embodiment of ancient wisdom, but a present embodiment of divine wisdom. This was something his parents did not understand, but this would not be the last thing that they did not understand. Luke, in this text, is also foreshadowing a future wisdom in Jesus. But this foreshadow, it's not in verse 52 where you expect it. It's not in verse 52 where it says Jesus grew in 
wisdom and favor. It's actually back in verse 39. Let's look at it. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. So Luke opens up this narrative. Jesus has just been born. And here it says that they, Joseph, Mary, performed everything according to the law. What does that mean? What does it mean, performed everything according to the law? Why is that in here? Uh, What does it mean? The answer is back in verse 22. 22 through 24. Jesus was just born. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Pigeons. So Jesus is born, and it says that according to the law, they went and they offered a sacrifice for their firstborn son. And in that sacrifice, in this passage in Luke, uh, Luke is foreshadowing in that sacrifice, a sacrifice that is to come. How do we know that this is what Luke is doing? Here's how we know. Where it says he performed everything according to the law, or they performed everything, that word performed is the word tele-eo. It's the word it means to complete, to fulfill, to finish. And Luke uses it three other times in the gospel. Luke 12, 18, 22, all in reference to the death of Jesus in fulfillment of the scriptures. All in reference to the death of Jesus in fulfillment of the scriptures. You see, here's the point that Luke is foreshadowing. What Luke is foreshadowing is that they brought and offered a sacrifice on behalf of the baby who would grow up to be the sacrifice. They went and they offered a sacrifice on behalf of the baby who was going to grow up to be the sacrifice, who would be the true Passover lamb, who the possessor of the favor of God would on a cross die to set it away, who on the cross would die to give it away, who on the cross would die so that you could have what he was born with, so that when the Father looks at you, he doesn't think disappointment, he thinks favor. Favor is on his lips. Jesus grew up, died to give away what he was born with, so that when the Father looks at you right now, irrespective of last week, last month, or whatever happened 10 years ago, in Christ, favor is the word that's on his lips. Favor. But it wasn't just you. It was also the poor and the marginalized that Jesus was a king who would grow up to give his life for the poor, who would be marginalized for the marginalized. And you say, that's, that's not in our passage. Where's that in our passage? Here's where it's in our passage. It, when it says turtle doves or pigeons, you know what that was? That, that was what the poor offered. So if you couldn't afford the lamb, if you couldn't afford the proper sacrifice, turtle doves or pigeons is what you offered. You see, in Luke's display of divine wisdom and Luke's identification of Jesus back with the Davidic king of Isaiah 11 in drawing out the ethical implications of Jesus' life and ministry, here's what he's saying, that Jesus was offered by the poor for the poor. By the poor for the poor. And listen, a king who came from a family that couldn't afford a lamb, a king who died for his subjects, not his subjects died for him. This This was wisdom that Rome would have said is utterly foolish. This is wisdom that Rome would have said, this makes no sense. This is utterly foolish. But what's the point Luke is making? 
Why is this story in here? The story is in here to say that this world upending, this um, culture subverting, foolish wisdom of God that Jesus would possess as an adult, he had it as a 12-year-old boy, and listen to me, in Christ, because of Christ, you can have it too. You can have it too. You can have it too. You can follow in the footsteps of Jesus. You can, as Luke 9, 23 says, deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You can pick up that foolish cross and follow Jesus. You can. You can let your ambitions die so that your neighbor in need can live. You can let your ambitions die so that your neighbor in need can live. You can define wisdom as caring for the poor, justice for the oppressed. See, in the kingdom of Jesus, where Jesus reigns in the hearts of his people, in his community, where Jesus reigns, the wise and the good and the beautiful life, it is not not going from a three-bedroom to a four-bedroom house. It is not going from a side yard to a full backyard. It is not making partner. It is not executive. It is not management. It is not where you fit on the corporate ladder. It is not those things. Listen to me. There is nothing wrong with any of those things. Nothing wrong with any of them. But if you make that your life's ambition, the if I have this, then my life is good and I have succeeded at life. If I don't have it, I'm a failure. I have to have, for me to have shalom, for me to to have that flourishing that I want, that we all want, for me to, to experience a taste of shalom, I have to have these things. For you to say, I have to have it, or my life is not the good life, Jesus would say, that sounds like Roman wisdom and it's foolish foolish. That sounds wise in Rome. Not in my kingdom, not among my people. No. Jesus would say the wise and the good and the beautiful life, this is what it looks like. It looks like caring for your neighbor in need. It looks like working for justice for the oppressed. It's why we partner with organizations, organizations who give people in need of a second chance a second chance. Organizations that work for and care for the orphan for the refugee. Work that Rome would say, foolish use of time. But Jesus would say, wise and good and beautiful. See, Luke was foreshadowing Jesus as an adult. He was giving theological grounding to the ethical and the social implications of Jesus' life, his ministry, and his kingdom. Implications that Rome would say was foolish, but Jesus would say is wise. But it's Jesus' wisdom It's Jesus' wisdom that leads to the world that we all want. The world we all want where everyone is valued no matter your rank or place in society. The world that we all want where the poor and the marginalized are no longer marginalized and they have food to eat. It's the world that we want. And it's Jesus' wisdom and his kingdom that leads us there. It's this upside-down, inverting, foolish wisdom of God. And where Jesus reigns, this is what it looks like. It's why in our family, in this community here, in this community, whether you give $7 to a capital campaign or $7 million, no one is on different footing. There are no elites in here based on what you give or what you don't. Not in Jesus' community. Dignity, value, worth for all. Why? 
Why? Because Jesus died to give you the favor that he was born with. Favor that does not come with a price tag. It does not come with a rank in society. It does not come with a paycheck. You're not more favored or less favored based on the income that you make or the kind of job that you have. And in this community, we get to live it, display it, and see it in one another. Luke was writing this story about Jesus embodying this ancient wisdom of God. Ancient wisdom that said, hey, here's how you get the world that you want. You have a king who values all men, women, and children equally. A king who says, I'm willing to take the power that I have and I'm going to work for the poor with it. You don't get it through military might. You don't get it through wealth. You get an illusion of it through those things. You want it. You want shalom. It comes through this king and his kingdom. And we get to be the living embodiment of it to one another and to our neighbors. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son into the world to be the king of kings, the king that was to come, who would live, die, and be resurrected on our behalf. Thank you that he was a king who would take all that he had and die to give it away, that those of us who have nothing might have everything in him. Would we see that and believe that and embrace that, embrace that with Christ, in Christ, we might have nothing on this earth, but we have everything in him, everything. Would that be on display in our community? Would you make us more and more of a family who values all, no matter your place in society? Would we celebrate the gifts and the grace that you give to one another without elevating one member of this family over another? For us to be that kind of community, to put your kingdom on display, we know it takes your grace, your mercy, your sustaining power to do it. We cannot do it alone, and so we're asking you to come and to help and a full, to, to mold us and to form us into that kind of people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.